Welcome to episode six of the Bobbycast. Thank you very much. And it's our studio guest, Charles Esten, musician, actor, and all-around happy guy. Uh, let's welcome him in with our two people clapping. Yeah. Oh, hey. Thank you for that smattering. By the way, I don't, I, you know, after uh, about, I guess about nine months ago, I don't call you Charles anymore. I call you Chip. Yeah, well, that's what everybody calls me. I mean, when anybody that watched Who's Line, it was always Chip. And, and everybody oh, was th- it Chip yeah. on Who's Line? Yeah, on the show they said, hey, Chip this, Chip that. And in fact, they use that on the screen. But every other time you ever see me, it, my credit is Charles. But everybody's calling me Chip. People think I somehow moved to Nashville and went, I'm Charles now. <laughs> it was never that. It wasn't. This is Mike, by the way, our producer. Hey, Mike. Hey, I'm, I'm Charles. Call me Charles. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry you had to walk through the war zone to get here. It is, the flood has caused this place to be a disaster. No, it was it was very interesting. It was like back at this alley up through there and down through there. It felt very magical when I finally arrived. It, yes, it's like you've walked through the deep, dark woods, then finally it opens up. Exactly, <laughs> yes. So let's start with today, and then I want to make a full circle back all the way around to today. All right. Okay, so let's start with today, because now I, I think it's interesting what you're doing. And so you're doing something now every single Friday, which means you put out a song Every single, single Friday. Friday. It's like yeah. a single every single Friday. Yeah. Now, so so talk about that for a second. So you decided, why did you want to do this? Well, you know, I get to be on the show, and uh, I get to play a singer-songwriter. Nashville, by the yeah, way. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and um, that's what brought me here. But I was a singer-songwriter long before I ever came here, long before I was an actor either. And um, I just... Certainly, the show gets to where you can meet a whole lot of people, and, and I've been able to write with a whole lot of people and perform with a whole lot of people. So over these last four years, I've been not only writing music, but actually recording it, and ended up with a whole bunch of music that when I would go out to play shows, I would play a show full of songs that nobody had ever heard, and then when I was done, nobody could even go buy it, or if they liked it, they had there was nothing they could really do. And so I always meant to put out an EP or an album, because you know that's what you're supposed to do. And... Finally, I, I just had, I don't know what was holding me up. It was the very fact that I wasn't doing that. that was telling me something was wrong with that. That was rubbing against me in the wrong way. Certainly some of it is, is that it's not like there were all these labels, you know, whining and dining me or calling me or anything like that. That's just the, that's just the nature of it. I have this following and these people that love the show Nashville and love them come see my shows. Um, but I didn't have that. And uh, so it was like, well, how am I going to do this? And, I don't know what made me think of it, but when I finally did, it was just like an aha moment of, yeah, the only reason I wouldn't do this is because nobody does it. And that's not a good enough reason because what I really, really want is all these songs that I really love and I love getting to go play. I just want them out there. I mean, if anything comes of it, that would be fantastic, but I'm not really chasing that per se. When I say fantastic, I mean, it would be unbelievably fantastic because I just wanted to get heard. And for now, I know very well what, the mistakes are about this. I know how you're stepping on your own single every single week and how long it takes for one to go. But this is really just inspiring for me. It makes me want to write. It makes me want to record. If I can do this for a while, if I could do it in some insane way for a year and somehow you want to put a song every week for a year. If I could, I'm not, look, I'm not going to go, Oh, I need a song. Oh, this one sucks, but I need one. (laughs) I'm I'm not going to do that. You might think it sucks, but I'll never put out one that I think sucks. They're always going to mean something to me. And that's the other thing is that I'm all over the map. I don't know what that album would be. Everybody, 
I mean, it wouldn't be cohesive. There's no A&R department or no label saying this is the album and this song gets off it and this song gets on it. I it's, also don't think the albums are going to be a thing right? in five years. Like They're not going to be a thing because nobody cares. Right. Frankly, nobody cares about records. And people do buy them because they have artists. And But you're seeing, for example, Florida Georgia Line put out a record this week. And I think it was number two. Barbara Streisand beat it. Uh, crazily, like I was. Right. Listen, people don't understand how big Barbara Streisand is and was and has sold mm-hmm. over the years. Mm-hmm. So she's number one. They're number two. Britney's right there too. This album was like sixty thousand less than their last album, and it's not because this album isn't any bigger or they're any smaller. It's because people aren't consuming it the same way. They're not buying whole products anymore. We want the songs one, two, three songs maybe. Yep. Because we're not looking for the whole album anymore. I, I, you know, go make you know, when, when when I was growing up, it was always mixtapes. I mean, yeah, they had albums, and we all had the albums. But then you would take your albums and you would make mixtapes with the exact songs you wanted on it, or even if it was the one artist. So I'm like, here's all these singles. Go make your own albums out of my singles. I do it on the radio. Like I would hit record, pause, play, and then tone loco come on, and I would hit unpause, and then record <laughs> funky call Medina, and then I would wait for that to go off, and then I would do I touch myself by the divinals, and I would do that, and then I would do president, and that's what I have on me. It was the actual cassette tape. I bet you still have those tapes too. Probably, pack yeah, I do. I just put them all on a playlist now. Do it. So I'm gonna play. This is a uh, this town is ours. Tell me about this song here. Well, this is actually um, uh, a song uh, I wrote with uh, Chris Farron and Matthew West. Just wanted a song that says, I like songs. When when you go play live, you probably notice yourself when you play live, it makes you realize what your set needs, what your show needs. Um, uh, in the, Whether there's, I need some up-tempo here. I, need, I just wanted a song to step out on stage and say, we're here. You know, And, and the first lines really speak to me. It's, it's been a long time coming. It's been a hard road running. Now all that's done, and all we want to do is play. Uh, is it less than people search it as Charles or Chip Esther? It's it, that's that's a very good point. You probably shouldn't have given me a long time ago. It's all under Charles because yeah, wherever it's, yeah. wherever it's written, it's Charles. But it's if, a they, big deal. Uh, if they if they if they search Chip Esther, I believe they do find it. Here we go. This town is ours. I'm gonna give you some of this. this town- So that's been part of every single Friday. Yeah, that's the most recent single. And um, I tell you, even listening to you play it, even listening to you play my single is a whole different ball game than hearing you play something that Deacon sings on the air. Yeah, that's me performing it. But I think this is getting to the real root of it as I was hearing that because you're like, oh, that's that's my baby. That's my child. Some people are going to like it. Some people aren't going to like it. And um, by the way, the cool thing about it is if you didn't like that, guess what? In uh, like three more days, there's another single. There's another- <laughs> <laughs> so, so don't sweat it. But the, the, the cool thing about it is is that um, even just having it out there um, is thrilling. I've been an actor for 25 years. So that means for 25 years, I go around uh, saying what other people tell me to say, saying it in a way another guy or, or gal directs me to say it. Somebody else edits it up, produces it. They dress me. They want to dress me. Uh, I realized that it was tricky when coming here. It's like, who am I? What do I have to say? What is, you know what I mean? And that's what music does is you're trying to speak from your heart. So 
I think I'm pinballing around to anything that comes through me right now. And I think after doing a whole bunch of this, I bet you that I know a whole lot more who I am and where my strengths are and what people uh, are drawn to the most. And, and then maybe, uh, you know, at some point it's, I'll click into that a little bit more, but for right now it's all me. So I can say from experience that listen, Chip's a really nice guy. Like he, he's one of the few guys that he is as nice as he seems. We were walking to the airport, and, and we've been together on a few occasions doing different things. And when people call you Deacon, you, that's just hey, it's great to see you. Thank you for. It's weird that people will have like hey Deacon, and you're like, that's that's me. How are you? Let's take a picture. And I was like. Man, like a little bit. Are you like, oh, man, I wish they would call me Chip. I wish they would know me as my... How does that work in your brain? You know what's funny is I don't... It's interesting to me hearing you say that because it doesn't even occur to me that I wish they called me Chip I, or they, they call me Charles. I don't care. It brought them joy. It brought them a connection. There's something about that character that means something to them. Maybe they share they watch it with their mom every week or maybe they share that, you know, um, there's something about the music. So... Uh, look, I, like I said, maybe it's that I've been doing this a long time. So there were people that knew me as Chip when I did Who's Line, and then there were people for a long time that just didn't know me. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get in their face about how they know me. I'm just, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's all pure love. I mean, especially when you're walking down Broadway a little too late at night, you'll get a whole lot of deacon. And, uh, and that, that's all right. That's that's why that's why we have season five, Bobby. So I'm not gonna look that in the face and go, "Come on, man, my, my name's Charles." You know? So let's talk about that for a second because I want to go full circle and come back to the music. So Nashville is uh, about to tape season five, and it got pulled from ABC and CMT and Hulu. I believe are doing a deal together now with it. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, okay. it'll air for the first time on CMT, and then Hulu has it the very next day, I believe. So was there a bit of time where uh, you were really like, oh, I don't know if it's going to get picked up. Like maybe I have to go and search for another job. Was that to you nerve wracking because you had set your roots down here with your family? Well, yeah. And, and you, you know, you were kind enough. You had me on in that, in that interim gap where we were between um, what we had lost and what we might find what we were sort of hoping to find but again i think this goes back to how long i've been doing it and how old i am and how and maybe it's just my basic faith has a lot to do with it as well before i got nashville i'd been doing it all for a long time and i I remember having a meeting with my agent and i said here's my your problem with me as an actor um is i'm content i'm too content i have this unbelievable family that i just love being around i get to do these good arcs on great shows like whether it was the office or big love or uh, enlightened and you know just on and on I've, I've been able to do these things that where i was never the star and i was i never really stepped above radar but i was always that guy that people sort of knew and so i literally said to him my promise is that your problem with me is that i'm content i said anything else more than i have right now would be gravy and i literally said this and i said but don't get me wrong i love gravy gravy is amazing <laughs> so I said, and it was weird because once i said that it was it was literally speaking it out and sort of letting go of the desperation to be that other thing. And I had a long time to let go. Sure, when I started out, I was going to be, you know, my wife worked with Kevin Costner, and I remember sitting across from Kevin and hanging out with him, and he could not have been kinder. But in my mind, I was young enough to go, yeah, I could be this. I got this. I could be the next that. And, you know, after a long time, you go, or not. You know, <laughs> and, you, and you understood, first of all, that very few people are that and are that anymore in the way we are. They don't have that. But what I'm getting back to is so when I got Nashville, that was that was 
you know, that's Southern gravy. That was everything I ever, literally everything I ever wanted in a show because it put together the music, the writing, the guitar, um, acting with people like Connie Britton and, and Hayden and just these unbelievable actors written by Callie Curry. T-Bone Burnett did it. Literally, my wife used to say, if you wrote down everything you ever wanted on a show, you would have missed like 80% of this. And she's right. So I get to do four seasons of it. Then when it goes away, I don't slip right back to desperation. Honestly, the first thing I slipped to was gratitude. I, don't, I, I know it's probably a little boring and you want, you want like, oh my God. I went to gratitude first because there was no, nothing I did out of desperation that got me uh, Nashville. It was probably relaxing into it that got me Nashville. So I thought, man. And now the other thing I thought was, that's a shame. It's a real shame because I knew we had new writers coming in and I thought we had places to go and I thought we had more songs to do and then the very next thing that happened the very next breath almost the same breath is that the Nashville fans started being heard and then it was even more gratitude it's like damn I don't know man Uh, it's one thing to lose your show and nobody says a word and it just sort of goes away it's another thing to lose your show and there's this outcry and people are really upset and really organizing I mean that's the other thing you know how fans now they're not just into you they're savvy they know that they know no social media they know getting uh, organized to sign petitions and things and still if nothing had ever come of that that's a hell of a way to go out with people that love your show and your character going nuts um and then there were people on the show that was like oh yeah we're getting picked up and by somebody and i was never that guy but when it happened i was like that's awesome. That's really awesome. How did you get the role? And were you ever in, like, was at a spot where you're sitting? Because I was reading an article by uh, John Krasinski, and he's talking about he went to New York and he was trying to make it forever, and he, he didn't make it. And GQ did this great article about how he spent three, four years out there, and he told his mom, hey, I'm moving back. And she's like, wait a few more months. And he said he walked into this room, and there were like 11 guys that looked exactly like him trying for the role of Jim Halpert for the office. And he was like, there's no way. And he said, as, as his time came up, they all went to lunch. And he's like, oh, well, this is weird. So he sits there through lunch. They come back. One of the guys sits down. And he goes, hey, what do you think about this show? And he goes, well, to be honest with you, I just don't want to see uh, an American version of the greatest show of all time run that show. And the guy ended up being like Jeff Daniels or whoever the producer. Or the Greg. Pro- Greg Daniels. Daniels yeah. Excuse me. Jeff Daniels. Is, yeah. 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 Uh, so Greg Dan- it was Greg Daniels. And he was yeah. like, I like your honesty. They auditioned, and he got the role right before he quit. And so for me, I'm thinking, man, that's how, you, that's how these guys are auditioning. Can you talk about how you auditioned or they came to you for the role of Deacon? Sure. First of all, by the way, uh, do you ever go to YouTube and watch auditions? I do sometimes. Have you yeah. ever watched his? Yes, I have. He's so fully and completely Jim immediately. Yep. And you get to see the other guys do it too, and they're, they're all fantastic. And that's my nightmare is that my bad auditions are somewhere up there <laughs> out there. But um, they're all so great, but he's just so utterly Jim. I don't know. When I started out, I guess it was the fact I didn't have a plan B. Um, there's nothing else um, that I thought I'd be great at. <laughs> so um, I, I told you before I had a desk job, and the, 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 um, my boss literally found me more than twice with my face on the desk and slobbering. What did you do as your desk job? Oh, honestly, I sold <laughs> I sold advertising supplies for um, real estate companies. So like uh, Coldwell Banker fly swatters and ERA shoehorns <laughs> and, and Century 21. So that wasn't your thing. That wasn't your no, thing. No, no. In fact, I remember the guy told me that got me the job. I needed something to support me while I was first in L.A. And he said, this is after I won a game show, by the way. I won a game show that that got me 
to be able to be there for a year, but then I need to get an actual job. And uh, so um, he said, look, you got to don't tell this guy you're an actor. He wants somebody who's really a salesman that wants to. So I had to go and act like a salesman. (laughs) I had to act like I really wanted to sell, you know, ERA uh, keychains for for the rest of my life. And this I'd I'd found my career. Um, and, And then it was about eight months later that I got my first talking bit on TV and I was going to have to quit and go do this, this show. And that was when I got my first taste of people just love TV, man. Cause that boss, I was like, I'm real sorry. I wasn't honest and upfront. And I, and I said, I'm not going to lie again. Cause it felt gross. I didn't like, it. I was like, um, I should have told you I'm an actor and, um, I'm going to have to, he was like, you're going to be on TV. Like he, he could, he could have cared less that I was quitting. I was a lousy employee anyway, but he was just thrilled that I was going to be on TV. So anyway, um, what that, show was that? That was a thing a long time ago on a little cable channel called, it was, it was Nickelodeon, so it was Nick at Night, and that was called On the Television, which was sort of like a Siskel and Ebert spoof, except it was TV shows that they would, uh, they would make a little mock TV show, like My Five Dads instead of My Two Dads, and, and I just had a few roles, uh, small roles on it, and I got to write a little bit on it, and it was the, it was the first thing, but... Um, Let me bring you back to the Nashville audition. Sure, please. So, no, so I was saying that um, that's, uh, I had been doing it for so long that I was always the guy I, I, I knew I, I remember what I was going to say there was nothing else that I was going to do I figured it was going to take six years I don't know where I got that number but I also knew that I'll just keep doing it as long as I can do it um, so six turned into more and turned into more and then I was always working but there was always sort of a I don't know where I, I definitely have a thing where I like to be liked and when you're an actor, that can be a little brutal because it means you're always trying to be the good boy. And I can remember once it occurred to me that, do you know that you take a shower and brush your hair and get brand new clothes on for every single audition? And like I'm going on a job interview, you know, even if it was, I could probably go play in a homeless guy that'd been in the streets for three weeks and I'd and go take go a shower clothes, and yeah. brush my teeth and get a haircut. And I was just always trying to be the best guy and there's so little in acting that you can actually take care of that i was trying to take care of every variable i could um and it was it wasn't long before this i as i just told you in that other story that i sort of relaxed into it like just quit trying so much quit caring so much and and i think that was real important for a role like deacon because there's nothing needy and uh all hepped up about deacon it's just sort of very very chill guy that's seen it all been there done it i don't think i could have gotten the role even three years earlier i wouldn't have been able to sit back it in it in the same way were, were you the guy they had in mind originally or were there a bunch of guys that you had N- nobody had me in mind originally it was um th- thank goodness it was callie curry was casting with rj cutler was the other producer and very strangely um genie backrack was the casting director genie backrack's husband was one of my best friends in the world david burke david and i went to college together i did one play in college because i'm in a band David and I did that play together, almost like a two-man thing. So all those years later, she's casting it. Now, to anybody out there, that sounds like, oh, he's in. It's, you're not in. That's, I could have gotten into that audition. So Jeannie was very kind and supportive always of me. But um, you got once you're in, all the casting director does is get you in and support you along the way. you got to earn that from the producers. So I remember I knew who Callie Curry was. I read that script, and I was like, oh. I was, I, you know, the, the inside head goes, I really want this. And, the, and you go, shut up, man. Just calm down. Be cool. And, and somehow that was the stronger voice. And I never went to, I really want this again. I just, I just said, what occurred to me is I, I'd come so close on so many things, shows you've seen, movies you've heard of, and not gotten them, that I realized that 
so what? I survived. You know, like when you do stand up, they say you die on stage. Oh, I died many last times. Night. I died many times during a great set. Yeah, but that's the thing is you don't really die. The next morning, you know, you're still eating breakfast and you know, when you get kids, they're still telling you they need new shoes or something. So you you don't die. And all those shows I didn't get, I was like, I'm fine, I'm still here. So you sort of let go in that way a little bit. And by the way, maybe letting go and maybe my lack of drive and my I'll, I'll take all the time I want is why it took me 20 damn years. <laughs> it's very possible. I, I just don't have that muscle that some others have. But in any event, so um, when I when I know I'm going in there, yeah, they got other people in mind. They got names in mind. Were you the only sure. one there when you showed up? Well, that's funny because um, – I was, except as I showed up there in the waiting room was Hayden Panettiere. And there were no guys. There were no Obviously, she wasn't trying for the deacon role. <laughs> she was not. No, yes. no, thank God, because she would have she beat me out. Um, uh, before I went in there, I thought, you know what? I can, I, I've been doing this country music. I've been writing it. I've been playing it live. I've been doing writer's rounds. And... I know that all these guys that beat me out all the time, the same guys, you know, that uh, John was talking about, that he, you, you see those same guys again and again in the room, or if they weren't in the room, you'd see them later in the show. That's, it's one of the hardest jobs in the world because it's one thing to really want a job. If it's, say there's in the real world, there's a job and you really want it, you do everything you can, you put your heart in your soul, you go and you do a meeting and you give your resume and then you don't get it. All right, you move on. But what you don't have to do in the real world is watch somebody else go do it for 12 years and make $30 million to right. it. And so so I had, anyway, I'd gotten around that and I and I just I thought, you know what? I might have a chance at this one because all those guys I know, not everybody can play guitar. Did you take your guitar with you? Oh yeah, they told us to. They said you and I was thrilled by that. I I was like, "Oh man, they're not going to pretend that these people are musicians and singers. That's that's why I might have a shot at this one." And um, so there are a couple things real quickly. Uh, this is a small piece of the story, but I had uh, just recently found a really cool little stand for my guitar, folded up into nothing. You know, sometimes guitar stands are big, unwieldy things. So I'm walking out the door and I go, ah, I might as well bring my cool new stand. And I go to this audition and I walk into um, the building. And this happens again and again in my career where things that are meant to be have meant to be written all over them. And the little hints from God that this might be the thing. And one of those was the very place I went to audition with Callie and RJ and Jeannie was the same building and the same hallway where I had shot Whose Line Is It Anyway for a couple of years. And I knew that place way more did than Did it feel comfortable to you just because you were there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's a little bit of ownership. I mean... Um, Years ago, I auditioned to play Buddy Holly, and it ended up that I got to audition for Buddy in the very same theater where I was the house manager. I swept up, I tore tickets, I made coffee, and so it was like auditioning in my living room, and this had a little bit of that. So I walk into that building already with that little lift in your step, like, all right, this not everybody has this wind behind them. And then I walk in, and there's Hayden Panettiere, and I, you know, that's the cheerleader, save the cheerleader, save the world, and, and I know who she is. She doesn't have a clue who I am, and... um we said hello. I said, nice to meet you. Shook her hand, and we all both went back to our notes. They were seeing me first. She was just doing something before she went in. So I went in, and um, they were very, very warm and welcoming. And there was two songs, and then first I did a couple scenes, and then I was going to do two songs. I completely forget the order I did them in. Um, I played an original. I played a Blake Shelton song actually, which was "What I Wouldn't Give," which is one I really liked and uh, I thought was right for Deacon and Raina. Um, Did you know Reyna was going to be Connie at the time? 
In the first audition, I don't think so. It's hard so you for me just to had know. a character in your mind that you were singing to or about or with? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, it, and it jumped off the page who that character was and who these two people were and the history they had. By the way, when you ask questions, I don't know. When I, when I read your autobiography or when I read other people's autobiographies, I'm like, I would have no shot at writing that because I have the worst memory. So... I would. How do you know all that well, stuff? Well, because you're going to get sued if it's not right. <laughs> so you be, you better freaking get it right. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not saying that's I get it right. That's probably why no, I don't you, even start. You'll, not, you'll start remembering once you decide, it, well, i got to write a book, and yeah. I'm going to get sued if I'm not right. I so. can see that. You're like, it was, it was kind of like, um, no, I don't know. Yeah, I guess I don't think I did know at that point, because that would have made me a little nervous, for, 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 to be honest. So I sit down, and I, I think what I did was I played the songs first, and then um, I remember I pulled out my little stand and I put my guitar in it and I went over to do the scenes and I knew this guy. I knew this guy, Deacon. I don't know why. I just got him and I could sit back in him and and it came very easy. And the thing that I, I know what I was talking about earlier, from this long career of not getting these things I wanted, sometimes there's roles that are so good that you might end up only getting to play this guy once and that's at the audition. So what I would always say is, I'm going to do it my way. I get one shot to play this guy right now. In this moment, I'm the one playing Deacon. And this is how, and instead of what, you know, you're always talking about aiming for what they want instead of doing what you are going to be great at or what you, what you want. I wouldn't know what they wanted Deacon to look like. There was a time that's all I tried to guess at. You didn't was, chase what you thought they wanted. You did what you felt was yeah, you. Because honestly, you reach a certain point where I was like, you might think you want that. You're wrong. You want this. You finish the audition. You you play. You sing. You do your scene. How long until you actually know from that point that you have the role of Deacon? Let me take a quick shortcut. As I'm walking out of the room, I don't know if I told you this before, but as I open the door, there's Hayden Panettiere by the door, like listening, like like <laughs> comedically, like I love Lucy or something. Her, I almost hit her in the head with the door, and and I walk out, and she starts clapping and saying because she heard me singing and she liked the songs, and she, and I'm like. What in the world? Who? I've never. I said, "Can you come to all my auditions?" Because <laughs> this is fantastic. And uh, and so I'm acting cool. And she now we really meet. And I said, as I'm ready to leave, I, I'm just sort of blowing smoke. I go, "Well, I'll see you on the set." That's what I said to her. Totally. And I was nowhere near getting this job. And uh, you know, finally, when we were on the set one day, she said, "See you on the set." And um, but so no, I go home and I knew it went really well. Um, Callie Curry is a very enthusiastic heart on her sleeve person and um and she also doesn't suffer fools gladly she's very intelligent very and i could tell there was a connection towards what i was doing i also know how far that i'm not a name uh, and so that they, they generally networks want to give shows to names especially a bang on lead like this i've been doing it long enough to know a bang on lead and deacon is exactly that um he gets to hurt he gets to feel he gets to fail he gets to win and that was all in the pilot <laughs> So I knew. So, yeah, it took a while, and then I had to go in again, and then I had to go in another time. And uh, not a lot of people know this, but at one point, they made an offer to somebody. They called me up. My agent called me. Well, they made an offer. And I was like, oh, you're kidding me. And I said, who? And the guy they said was somebody I knew personally and somebody I'd grown up with, actually, and had sort of not followed out to L.A., but somewhere where I, somebody where I was like, I know that guy. I know those guys. Maybe it's not just craziness. If he can do it, maybe I can do it. So they offered the role to him, they and he, and he said no? Well, I didn't know that the first day. 
And then the second day, I keep reading the trades. And, and, and I thought, yeah, he'd be great. He'd be fantastic. And I was a little heartbroken. There was more than a little heartbroken. Finally, after a week, I'm going, what the hell? And uh, my agent calls up and goes, um, yeah, your friend passed. I'm like, what? And they go, they want to see you again. Even after that, it was another two auditions, including a street screen test again for ABC. I'm telling my family, we would drive right by the ABC building in Burbank every day. I was taking my girls to soccer. And every single day, we'd drive by at least twice there and back. Right, Bob Hope Drive? Uh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, but I was on the 134. Yeah, right. right. Well, Bob Hope Drive is NBC. It's right before that. It's right next to it. Yeah. And, and every single time we'd walk, drive by, the whole car would say, please, ABC. <laughs> and I'm talking, we'd be in the middle of a, of a discussion. We'd be going, I don't want to. Well, we had chicken last night. Let's get it. Please, ABC. <laughs> Hamburgers. And, 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 then, uh, and so I waited and I waited. And finally, um, I, I ended up getting it. And um, real funny is a couple of weeks after I shot the pilot, I finally gave my friend a call and said, I didn't really know, you know, they don't make Hallmark cards for this situation, but thank you for passing on Deacon. And by the way, he had personal reasons. It wasn't that he didn't love the role. He just, there was something he had, he had other things. He was, he's more ahead than I was. And he started laughing. He said, I was so glad when I heard you got it. It's just, you know, meant to be. And it still blows my mind. I'm not going to ask you who it was, but we, would we know him if you said his name? Yeah. 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 Cool. I'll leave it right there. Thanks. Uh, so, okay, let's back off Nashville for a second, go backward. So, my two favorite shows are the British office and the American office. Those are my two favorite shows. Like I love them both. I just, I just love them. And so one of my top favorite episodes and even is, is you, you're in like whenever they go to the convention Yeah. and working with those guys and working with Jim, cause you were on the office working with Jim and Michael Scott, Michael Scott, I'm calling their character's name. Sure. Steve Carell. The, like talk about that like you get such your role was so funny as a straight guy mm-hmm. so they call and say hey we want you to do this role on the office you walk in it's a single camera shoot had you been a part of a single camera shoot before where there's no laughter while doing a comedy i actually had and, and let me back up i'll say they didn't just call and offer me this thing this is a very interesting story on how i got the office and by the way the office opened me up for a whole bunch of other things if you went back and looked at my resume you would see that the office was a point was sort of a sea change and the reason for that is because it was an industry show it was beloved it was intelligent it was done right so in a sense when you get on a show like that it vouches for you for other shows, it's a shortcut. They go, oh, there's the guy in the office. And, and, and they probably watched it too. So that gets you another level up. And that started opening up things on HBO. And, and all of those things were one of the reasons where they said, yeah, he can do the Nashville. So it all goes together. But the funny story of how I got that one, let me tell you, I was on a single camera comedy pilot um, that got, it got shot for NBC. And in that show, it was a complete cattle call for these two characters and I got completely arbitrarily hooked up with Rain Wilson. Oh, really? This is years before the, the office. Dwight Schrute, by the way. Dwight Schrute, right. years before the office. Totally randomly, me and him. These two characters are androids who solve crimes in this pilot called The Expendables. It wasn't even a pilot, then it was a script. And they would just put you together, and we're reading the script back and forth. And we just started improvising and messing around and screwing around. And immediately I saw this guy who was brilliant and hilarious and very kind. And so we just... We just clicked, and we were having a ball with it. <laughs> you know, it was so silly and goofy, and so we went in, and we and we and we ended up getting it. And more than that, then we end up getting. Now we're gonna have a 
it's all it's the whole cat show is cast now we go to nbc and it's a big table read and this is where they decide if they're going to even make a pilot of it and we're sitting at this long corporate table and he and i just sit next to each other utterly riffing on these two idiot um characters who are androids that solved crimes and by the way 80 percent of the show we were naked and you know just because we were androids and they were just strategically um shot so we end up, and because it went so well, we were so loose and we're making each other laugh at that a table read that ends up getting going to pilot. So we shoot a pilot for this thing, and um, it, it's such a tricky line to walk. And it ended up not really working. We didn't get picked up. But there's some very funny moments back and forth with, with he and I. And I knew he was destined for great and big stuff. In any event, I get this audition. When I, first, I was a huge British office fan myself. The greatest show, oh, right? Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Right? Well, talk about sea change. I'd never seen anything like that. When anything could be allowed to be that quiet and that boring for that long and that uncomfortable. Uncomfortable is the key. Yep. I mean, it... It's the most uncomfortably awesome show I've ever seen in my life. It's cringy. It's, it, you would even share it with some people. Like, you got to see this most amazing thing. And you'd sit there for a couple of minutes and go, oh, they got it. They're going to have to get this if on their own. they don't get it, time. then I look really stupid. <laughs> it's true. You look yes. like an idiot. It's like, yes. it's like you got to see this video of paint drying hilariously. And they're just going, I just see paint drying. So, anyway, I was a huge fan. And I saw it and I was like, man, they're. I can't even believe they're going to try that. I know a bunch of shows that they've done it this way, but and then I saw Steve Carell was going to be the lead, and then I saw Rain was the, and I was like, oh, I don't know, they might be able to do this. So immediately I saw the first two, I go, I think they got a shot at this. They're finding their own voice. I called my agent up. I go, you know, uh, on the British one, there's the good boss, the guy that has his stuff together, and everybody, you know, Michael wishes he was. I bet they end up doing that. When they do, you got to get me in there. And so they ended up doing that in season three, or at the very end of season two, actually. And he got me in there, and I went in to meet with them. And uh, we, I'm sitting there, and I go, so I, I hear you're a friend of Rain's. Because uh, Rain must have said, said something nice that I was coming in. I somehow bumped, let him know, or maybe saw him as I walked in. And I go, I said, yeah, not only that, uh, Rain and I were in a pilot together where we played androids that solved crimes. And they're, they're just dying laughing. You know you are kidding myself. And not only that... I have a DVD of that pilot. And they're, and they're like, no, you don't. Like, and not only that, if you give me this job on the first day of shooting, I will show up and put that DVD into your hand. <laughs> and I could just see all their eyes light up. And they called before I got to my car in the parking lot. And I'm, I'm certain that's how I got that. There was a lot of great guys in the town, but they wanted that DVD. So uh, they got their DVD, and I got to play uh, this character. And you're right. He was... He was a straight man, and that was another real lesson because that showed what it's like to be on something great. I had been on a lot of uh, cool things, but this was really very, very special. And what it occurred to me was that just being on it, people thought I was funnier. Because if you look, I don't have that many jokes. I don't. I didn't really. I had to really work a lot harder at being funny on things that weren't half as good. So people would see you on and they go, "Oh my God, you're so funny." But here's the thing, though: when you say that, like I, I look at that and I and I disagree and go, "Your timing of not being funny was equally as funny," because to me, humor is not just about saying something funny. It's also about sitting back and letting funny happen, letting funny happen. And then hopping back in at a point, even if you're not funny, knowing when that point to hop back in was. Yeah, I know what you're right. You're you're right. You're right. I was very funny. You were. I, I, thought, <laughs> like you, I thought it was amazing. Like it's no. really one of my favorite episodes. I mean, and then Michael Scott ends up in a room by himself having the party. Oh, that's one of my favorite lines. Is uh, we Jim and I do uh, an inside joke. He goes, "Huh." 
I always want to be a part of one yeah, of those. Yeah, because I've been so choked <laughs> I'm such a fan of that show. That's so crazy. Yeah. Did you crack a lot during that? Well, you know what? I, got, I was actually pretty good at maintaining for the, the joke itself. But then when when normally you would say cut because we're out of dialogue, that you'd be a fool to cut on Steve or on John or any of them. So that's when they would try a couple other things. And and those are the ones that sometimes you, you, you would you'd lose it a little bit. But look, I was just, I tell you what, I was uncool when I went to the office. I had been doing this a long time, but I wasn't cool enough to be cool. I was too much of a fan. It was like I'd won a damn radio contest to go be on a show that you love. Um, I, I, I was doing my best to be good, but I have to admit, those are some cool kids to be hanging around. That's like at high school. And <laughs> In retrospect, they're probably, yeah, he was a little bit uh, you know, excited to be there. I bet they would, but they couldn't have been kinder. I spent... You know, most of the time with with uh, John and with Ed, uh, Ed Helms, um, and we had a we had a, a great time. I, it was one of the hardest lines I've ever said in my life. Was when I'm offered the job to take over at uh, you know the Scranton branch, and I said, "Well, actually, I've uh, I've agreed to a, a job that I'll be taking at Staples." <laughs> and I remember first reading that in my script, the line that basically kills you off the show, and I was like, "Ah." Oh. Like, what would happen if you just refused to say that? <laughs> what if I had just said, uh, well, thank you very much. I accept your offer. I do accept this position. Thank you. And that's all I will say. The, the producer would be like, oh, damn, they tricked us. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's go back for a second to Who's Line because I, I watched Who's Line. And, you know, I remember uh, all of you guys, like Wayne, Drew had hosted and Wayne. And, I mean, you can go through the whole cast. But I just didn't know how that was shot. Like, would you guys just go up and nail it every time, half hour? And no, no. That, see, that's the thing is the level of – first of all, it was – people always wonder how could it be so good if it's improv. It was perfect. I was like, you guys are improv and you're nailing every second, every joke. Yeah, so everybody would think with improv that it wasn't really improvised. They were always sure that we were given the topics. Were you given the topics? No, we were never given the topics. In fact, I contend that it would be way harder to act like you were thinking of something off the top of your head than to actually think of something off the top. Something else I'll say is, if you go back and look at the transcripts, that, that's not like something you would write. <laughs> if you're going to you know, Greg always talks about somebody heard he was on an improv show and watched and said, why not prepare something funny? It was, was that guy's take. You, you can't really do that. Now, what the trick was that nobody really thought of was they just wouldn't air the crap they wouldn't you know so you would tape for a long period of time for whose line yeah you would tape like maybe three hours maybe three and a half hours sometimes i think it would be like that i don't know because you never you never came down you would even you would even stop during commercial breaks they would they would put the commercial break in there but while they were doing that it wasn't like we were toweling down and just drinking water we had to keep that audience going so we'd keep giving each other crap or just you know giving drew a hard time or the director would come out and ryan would throw something at him and so it was like calling who was on the show when, when you- i was on i was i was one of the fourth chair guys it was um wayne brady and ryan styles and colin mockery and then the fourth chair would uh, rotate and uh, between a bunch of different you know great people and it was it was great uh, to be on that but that meant i remember when i got i was on the british one and then i wasn't on for a little bit who hosted the british uh, Clive Anderson, uh, who's the British one, he goes, all right, we're good. you know, it was, and it was just a little bit of a different ball game. In fact, it started off as extremely British. It was a radio show, Bobby. It started off in, in England as a radio show. So they would improvise just like we are sitting at mics and create these things. And then they decided to make a TV show out of it. Uh, still very British and still in that more British 
uh, way was very cerebral and very uh, verbal. So they would almost stand right where they were. That's why the stage was probably so small. Um, and then you started hiring Americans like Ryan and Colin, who would look like a velociraptor walking across the stage. Or, or I remember uh, Ryan once was just a baby deer being born. And that some of that way more physical stuff. And then the Americans, you, you know, the British invasion came this way. The American invasion of whose line went that way. And then the whole show came here to the States. And when it came back to the States, it was not lost on me that here's these three guys that are on every week. Andrew and and these guys are my friends. Ryan was my biggest um, supporter. He told those producers all the time, "You got to get Chip you know, on," and that, that meant a lot to me. But I knew that when I got on the show, it wasn't just a matter of being funny. I'd seen other people as in that guest role, and I noticed that the ones that worked didn't defer didn't act like a guest at the party. They acted like they belonged there as much as anybody. And the way to do that is to throw a few elbows and smack somebody else comedically in the face because what, uh, it's like walking into your house. I would defer a little bit and, you know, but um, I realized that that didn't work there. So you just had to, the first job was to act like you belonged. And then once you act like you belong, now you're just improvising and they want you to do that too. Cause it's just like tennis with people that are putting the ball right back on your racket and they want you to put it right back at them very, very hard. So, you know, it was just a matter of act. First of all, they're the funniest guys I know. In the Would world. you feel, because I have peers, friends, very close friends that I think are so much better than me at what I do. And we do the same thing. Like one of my buddies has the biggest hip hop show in the country. His name's Charlemagne. Uh, I have a friend named Kennedy who was on MTV. Uh, she does Fox News. She's one of my best friends. She's so smart. And we will go to dinners together. It's like our little like group. Mm-hmm. It's our group. We talk all – we stay close. We confide. We go to advice. But I feel like they're so much brighter and quicker and funny that I, I just feel so much pressure. And I want to be as good as they are. At the same time, I, I just respect them so much. Did you feel that with those guys? Like, wow, these guys are so good. I've got to get to that level. Or did you just feel like I'm part of the group? It was, it was when I was in England that I felt I didn't know what the group was. And I didn't know how good they were when I first got it. So that was not an issue. And then when I was, I was like, oh, man, they're bringing it. So I got to bring it. And, and then I did. And then I started seeing how good the people I was with were. And, and it made me think about it more. And when I started thinking about it, I got less good. And so I fell off for a while. But when I got back on... I didn't go to that place again. No, I have to admit. And the reason is, is in any given moment, uh, what you don't have is you're rarely on stage with those peers of yours. Right. I had, I would sit in four chairs. We'd all step to the end of the line and they would tell a joke and it would kill and somebody else would do another joke. And then I would step forward and every once in a while I would get the biggest laugh in any given moment. Any of them, any of us can kill. And we would realize that on tour, we would tour with larger groups. Like 10 of us would go out in Las Vegas, every Super Bowl. Drew would bring like 10 people to uh, the MGM Grand. And at the beginning of the night, they would give all the applause. Uh, the last people out were the people that everybody knew the most. You would end with the biggest names. And the applause would gradually grow so that by the very end, the very people they knew the most got the most applause. What we, what we always notice is at the end of the show, the applause was based on what kind of show you had. So it, it, would, it could totally change up. The first guy introduced might have just been on fire. And he would get the biggest. And pe- people would go crazy at the end. And so we did know that on any given night, anybody can, uh, can win the day. And, and honestly, it's funny. It's, it's not, you would think it would be way more competitive. It's not. It's thrilling when somebody across from you says something hilarious. And it's not competitive with my friends. It's like, man, I just want to be that good. 
Oh, I look at them and go, they are the, I don't know if I can ever be that good. But aren't they completely good in different ways? Yes, absolutely. And That's for some the reason, they come to me too and go, hey, can you help me with this? And I'm just blown away that they're like, why do you need my help with something? Well, the, the thing is with comedy and when this thing we're doing, and, and you guys too, you're different things in the stew. Like Ryan's a carrot and, and you know, Colin's a potato. And I mean that literally for both of them. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I'm only kidding. But, um... But so I would never say, how can I be more potato-y or how can I be more carroty? I know that I had a different role. And it's funny, once you start to understand what your role is, then you get to really be that thing. I mean, I forget who said it. Somebody famous said, learn what you are, then go be that. Um, and we ended up getting to do that. And then they rely on who your character is. Drew, for example, would always know he was the guy that would be the butt of the joke. And and he played that. That's not always an easy character character to play because you can act too hurt, and then the audience is like, "Oh, or you, or just that, you know." So everybody had their role, and they made me. Honest to God, that's probably the real answers. Those friends of mine, they made me feel funny. So I have a clip here of Ho Down from Who's Line. So what is it? Mike sent me up here. I just the music to it. It's oh. that was my favorite bit on the show. <laughs> so what was Who's? What was Ho Down? Ho Down. They start playing this. And you just had to make up a line. And if you went first, it was the hardest because you had no time, right? You had to just think of it quick. And you were usually first, right? I was first, yeah. I'm, um, so it was tricky. Although sometimes I liked first the most because you so got... So was a song you had to continue on? Yeah, like you'd be going, I'm sitting here with Bobby. We're sitting in the chair. You know, you know and, and, and then make Dude, a background. here comes the woods. I see a hairy bear. <laughs> he's going to chase me now. Uh, he's going to be a blaster. And I can't run that fast, but Bobby can run faster or something. <laughs> uh, something like that. And uh, they weren't all that good. Um, no, but, no, but uh, the, the thing was you would get to gather your thoughts as quickly as you could. And what, the good thing about going first is when you went second, what would happen all the time is that person in first spot would steal your best rhyme, would steal your best joke. And so, um, God, people loved Hoedown. Um, and so those are some of my favorite things, too. And it's funny, real quickly, no, you didn't even ask. One of the funny things that people that try music improv and something even like Hoedown is – they forget the concept of a punchline. So the, if, if you're doing a song um, about, uh, about um, this podcast, the, the line is um, going to be um, the last, the punchline would be podcast. All right. So, or maybe it's, I'll, I'll make it Bobby Bones. Um, but I'm not here alone. I'm sitting in my chair beside Bobby Bones. Beside Bobby, Bobby Bones. Bones. Right. <laughs> so what people would do is they mess up, and what every amateur does is they go, um, I'm here with Bobby Bones, but that's okay because I am not alone. Uh, and it's like, wait, that didn't pay off. That that was the rhyme that you wanted to set up the thing, the feeling of resolution when you say the thing that clicks. Um, you know, do you get what I mean? No, it's not. It's not like your name's some huge punchline, <laughs> right. but it's the it's the more satisfying way to do it. Otherwise, you say the thing, and then anybody can come up with a thing that rhymes with Bobby Bones, and it doesn't really point to anything. So, um, there was one I did. Um, you and sometimes you would have to actually have a um, uh, a punch a punchline itself in these jokes. I did one about Colin. It was about drinking, and um, I talked about his. His mother drank when she was pregnant. I'm sorry, that's the truth. When they took her 
uh, her blood her her blood was eighty proof. Um, uh, the doctors felt so bad they didn't know what to do. But if your baby looked like Colin, then you'd be drinking too. <laughs> was was you know and 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 it's not that's the thing is it's not the funniest joke in the world. But number one, it rhymed in the right order, and the punchline came at the end. And number two, they just watched you think of it. That's always the magic of it. And it is a little bit like magic. That um, it's, It seems like a magic trick, which is why sometimes it's even more exciting in person. I don't know if you've ever been to a live improv show, but you know how you watch magic on TV? There's always somewhere in the back of your head, oh, yeah, it's on TV. It's on TV. Yeah, yeah but if you're just sitting angles. there, I mean, if you're yeah. sitting, somebody did a, I was over at um, Tin Roof the other night, and this guy came by doing card tricks, and he did that thing. I wrote my name on a card, and he put it in his wallet, and I was just like, if that had been on TV, I would have went, yeah. But it was right in front of me. So that's improvs like that. It freaks you out. I had friends that would come to the Groundlings Theater where I did it, and they just didn't believe it was improvised. So you're a Groundling. Actually, I was not a Groundling because I was. I took all their classes. It was like you start with basic, intermediate, lab, advanced. Did all that. Got into the Sunday show. Did The Sunday show would be like the JV. And it's from the Sunday show. You're generally in this Sunday show about six months or maybe a year. And from that, they get the new Groundlings. So I I was there almost a year and a half, two years, taking all these classes and getting higher and higher. Get in the Sunday show. Did one Sunday show. And I got um, Buddy Holly, and I moved to London. So you moved to London to the stage show, Buddy Holly. Yep. So was there anyone that you were training with in the Groundlings that ended up being a big deal? Because they put out a lot of famous people. Yeah, I was actually um, right before a lot of them. I was sort of in between. Um, uh, Phil Hartman had been just a few years, God. and John Lovitz, right? What geniuses. You're right. Especially, I mean, especially Phil. I mean, anybody at the Groundlings would say that he was utterly unique and born to be on that SNL stage because he could play all those characters. But all those things, so many of his earlier characters happened right there on the Groundlings stage. And he was actually um, a mentor towards... Uh, um, Julia um, Sweeney, who uh, it's Pat. She was there too. And then right behind me was um, Will Farrell. Uh, when I went off to London, Will came in right after and was joined, was in the Groundlings. And Will Farrell and Chris Kattan and Sherry O'Terry. And I mean, it really was a training ground for SNL. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's where they went to find. Yeah, because it wasn't there were, just. There were a few of them. There was one <clears> in Chicago, <throat> there was one in LA, there was one in. New York, but that was really one of. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't do justice to the actual list. You would have to go look at it and you'd be blown away because it wasn't just improv at the Groundlings. Most of it was sketch work. You would, that's what actually brought me there. When I first went to L.A., I mean, I so respect you doing stand-up because I've tried it. I went out when I first went to L.A., and you can't just jump in a movie or jump in a TV show, but you can jump up on a stage with a microphone. They'll let you do that every Wednesday at certain places. So I remember going to the comedy store on Sunset Boulevard, wrote this horrible little five minutes, and I remember getting up, and I had a guitar, and I had a couple funny songs to sing. And um, I remember the first lesson I learned is you got to be talking immediately because I was silent, and I was setting up my mic, and my head was down. I'm getting everything ready, and I look up, and it's been dead silent for 30 seconds. And I was so scared. I can remember my knees knocking. My mouth was foamy. I was freaking out. And I did my horrible five minutes, and I got off, and I went into the bathroom, and this was one of the most pivotal things for me ever, was I went into that bathroom at the comedy store, and I looked into the mirror, and I was just so furious with myself. I was just furious. Because? Because? It it was instantly clear to me as I walked off the stage, even before I got off the stages, this is what you want to do for a living. Not stand-up, perhaps, but standing in front of people and performing. You want to do this for the rest of your life, and you're going to let 200 strangers that you will never see again, half of whom are in the bag, 
you're going to let them petrify you like that? You're going to let them freak you out like that? So how did that change you? I went back a week later with the same middling material and did it again and wasn't even a little scared. It was it was so it was so binary an on off switch because I was way more afraid of me and what it was it was a perception perception thing. I perceived the whole thing differently. I didn't perceive that I needed to be great right then. I perceived that I needed to not give a crap and not be afraid of them. Not just I needed to be able to breathe on stage. So I just got up and I just stood there. And 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 then I was able to do it a couple other times and it quickly became clear to me that it wasn't my thing. I'm not that solitary a guy. I'm a more um social person and I like interacting and and also uh, not knowing anybody it was a really bad way to uh, did network. I wasn't meeting anybody. Um, and a couple comics I met, I would feel like we'd be talking and have a conversation. And I was like, Oh, this guy's cool. And he's funny, man. And then like an hour later I go, that dude was trying out his whole act on me. When yeah. we were talking. <laughs> He'd get yeah. up there and say all those same bits it's that I've been like, yeah, If you laugh during and, the conversation. Yeah. And that yeah. made me like, Oh man. I do that with my friends sometimes. They don't even know it. <laughs> like I'll do stuff. They're like, Oh man, I'm da, 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 da. And they didn't laugh. All right. Maybe I don't use that one. That's what we do. We have to find a training ground because here's the difference is that I can sit in my room and for us, when we do the raging, it's a whole different show. I can sit in my room, I can play guitar and I can practice and I can practice uh, uh, chords and, and fingering and muscle memory. And uh, then you can't practice on stage. You have to get up and fail and you have to be confident that you're going to fail and that it's okay or you're never going to make this it. This is why I'm so impressed with what you do because I'm, I've often thought of what if I went back now? I have, I have points of view now. I have things I might like to say. I might be able to do that, but I know you got to suck for a while or you got to be, um, find your material. Even the best comics go into little clubs and, uh, and there's some now, some of the bigger ones, I think Chris Rock and the others where you, everybody has to put their cell phone in a bag. And because you know that all these comics, they got great with that. You have to suck for a while. It's the 10,000 hour rule. They got great by being bad for 10,000 hours. And you suck. How do you do that? You suck for a long time. But you, you suck and you get better and you get better until you hit it and then you record it and then you're done. You got to start sucking again. Yeah. That's the weird part about it all. Because I'm going to do a comedy special in March or April of next year, like yeah. a, a special special that we haven't announced yet. But it's like we've been building and getting better and getting better. And I know as soon as we do the special, all that material is dead. Because you've done it. It's not like a song where you can hear it 30 times over. Well, you know, there's, there's a real debate on that. There, it goes back and forth. I, there's, a, there's a book I got I to gotta give you, a fantastic book I just read. I, I, I guess I'm not going to remember. Steve Martin would do this some of the – because I'm a huge Steve Martin fan. Yeah, yeah, like, one of, Steve Martin did something remarkable in his career that I have seen no one do, and that is retire at the top of his game and not tell anybody. Yeah. He was just the greatest and was like, I quit. He didn't tell anybody he quit. He just quit. Yeah. But he but, – he people knew his jokes. Well, that's the thing. This this book I was reading, Judd Apatow, uh, since he was really young, wasn't just a stand up, but he would interview all these stand ups. So he has interviews with as kids. He would yes. interview them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm trying to remember this. It's crazy in the head or something like that. I'm, I'm getting the title wrong. In any event, um, it, there was a debate within there with uh, some uh, uh, people think uh, Jerry Seinfeld. I guess is one of the few that says you don't have to retire anything. People don't mind hearing that j- joke again if it's funny. But I, I I'd be in your camp. I would feel like oh they've heard this one. That's the worst. I start to feel like, oh, they already know where this is going. I need to get better. Maybe that's a personal thing with me. Like, no, I always you feel gotta, like I got to. Well, get even better. if it is a personal thing, you gotta. You can't fight it. You get is get. But how do? What, what is your thing like when you're on stage? If look, when something wouldn't work, that's the thing I realized. When something wouldn't work in improv, 
we can, you know, we always get to go, what? I just made it up. <laughs> Don't judge me. You know, it's not so easy, is it? Um, and, and the other thing is, if some, if I said something that wasn't funny, I got three other guys to go, really? That's, that's what you're going to go with? And the audience would die laughing at how bad the thing I said was. So what do you do? Do you embrace the suck when it goes bad, or what do you do? You know that it's the loneliest place in the world before you go out there. There's no one to lean on. There's nowhere to fall back. It's it's when you miss and you do miss a lot and I do you have to miss you you when you miss it's awful when you hit it's the most amazing thing so you really play for the amazingness but what goes through your head after a miss how do you pick yourself it's like a quarterback throwing interception you have to be the quarterback that throws the you got to be Aaron Rodgers that throws three picks in a game and gets back up and continues and if you don't have that mentality it's just not for you because you will throw a lot of interceptions. Yeah, we know it's it's very that, that that's something that's very common with improv. Is I used to say that you have to rip out the rearview mirror, it, it, because every second you're looking in that in, that rearview mirror of that thing that you could have made funnier twenty seconds ago, you're going to go right into a brick wall. So you take that out and you and you move forward. But I'm even talking about that thing where you tell a joke and it gets sort of a. You go anyway. I never know how to do that. I never know the next thing. You just move. You just move. You just yeah. move. Duck and, and dodge. And just go to the next thing. And there are jokes that I've. I've worried about that. I wonder, and I I don't ever share my act, any you know, because I just wait for it. But there was one joke that I told in particular that I tried out because what happened was I had a weekend off, which is awful for me. I don't like to have weekends off, and so I was like, I know I'm going to go to theater down in uh, Franklin and I'll do two shows back to back because I wanted to work just new material. And so the problem was some of the uh, critics and blog and press wanted to cover it, and I was like, oh great, I can't just go work new material if people are going to come out and watch it. But I still had the two shows, and I wanted to throw some new stuff in. And I'd written this joke this day, and I was like, oh, I don't know if I should try it. And the joke was, it was... <laughs> I'm nervous here sitting and, and here for you. It. And it's here, already happened, and it's not me, and I'm, I'm and, just and, and, and I don't ever just sit after a joke and wait. Like, more of my stylists tell the joke, and, and I'm moving. I'm quick. Mm-hmm. I'm quick. I'm quick. I'm quick. And sometimes they miss, sometimes they don't. But the joke was, you know, finding an Uber driver... Is like uh, uh, I've been in an Uber and the guy would not stop talking. Like the guy would not stop talking. And I was like finding a good Uber driver is like finding um, a good woman because I've been single a long time. I had I'd led up into the, all this singleness joke. They have apps I, for that too. Yeah, I was, yeah they do. <laughs> I've tried them. And it's like finding a good Uber driver is like finding a good woman. They either talk all the time, they either don't stop talking, or they don't let you do butt stuff. <laughs> and I just sat, and I let. And I let the, and I let the crowd go. <laughs> Wait, I let the crowd go. <laughs> and then they start. It just and there's never a more vulnerable moment than when you say, "They either don't stop talking or they don't let you do butt stuff." Talking about an Uber driver, and it was a really hard spot for me just to sit and wait. Well. That's fan- that's fascinating because so much of what you do on the radio, you don't get to learn the timing of it all. None. It's a complete. It's two different things. So you wouldn't have a clue that two but, different things. But you would. You were wise to know that that required math. They they had to do the math on. Wait a second. That is. He's talking about an Uber, and then they get. And it's just so absurd. Exactly. Well, let me ask you. I, I haven't seen the app. Right. They get there faster when the jokes are like that. My problem was is some of my jokes would be one way, and then I would do the absurd one. And if they're not expect, you know, with Steve Martin, you knew the absurd one was coming. With Stephen Wright, you know the absurd right. one's coming, so they're faster to it. But if you're not dealing pitches like that, then they it takes them a second longer to catch it. Is that a lot of them, or is that unusual? No, very, very. 
that one is unlike any other. Yeah, so go, I knew I had to so sit yeah, and yeah, wait yeah, on yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's a very vulnerable feeling sitting and waiting because as I sit there and waited, I just waited. And if nobody laughs, you're you're isolated. And then you just go to the next joke. But they laughed. Do you ever watch any Andy Kaufman? Uh, That's YouTube? my hero. It's my hero. Andy Kaufman's my hero. Yeah. Like David Letterman's my real life hero of my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Like I was able to watch. Andy Kaufman to me is the most brilliant, I'm not even say comic, performer that I have ever seen. I agree. I just went down the Andy, uh, I went down that rabbit hole the other night on YouTube, was watching Jerry Lawler. Uh, uh, talk, uh, there's a great Jerry Lawler interview about that whole thing they did, the wrestling thing that Andy did. That He would wrestle up, women. For those yeah, who don't know, yeah. Andy was the woman's wrestling champion. No woman could beat him wrestling. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, him and, he, and he finally said to this Jerry Lawler, nobody would, nobody would let him wrestle guys up north, but there's this guy down here, I think it was in Memphis actually. Yeah. And Jerry Lawler said, oh, Mid-South Wrestling. Exactly. Yeah. He said, I'll wrestle him. So they went down, and Jerry Lawler put a pile dri- put two pile drivers on him. That it hurt, broke his neck, or supposedly broke his yep. neck, and he put on the. And back in the day, when you were watching it live, you were honestly never you were you thought it might be a put on, but then you go, no, 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 I think this is real, and that was the joy and the and the beauty of Andy. But um, what I'm relating it to is, I would think going back to that and watching him stand in front of an audience that hates him or isn't getting it, that would give me the. That would give me strength. To, the next time I went on, I would choose to be braver. I would want to be able to stand there. I remember even my, one of my first auditions, I had an audition to play um, Prince Charming in some uh, show at some big, big theater. This is in Los Angeles. I had not auditioned for anything, and I could feel those nerves creeping in again. And I knew I didn't want to do this job, and I probably wasn't going to get it. We had to audition in front of everybody. Everybody was all in the room when you auditioned and read before like the table, like in fame, that long table where they all sit there. And I didn't, they said they wanted you to read a piece like a monologue. I didn't have a monologue. So I stood there and I, and I said, um, I do not have a monologue today. So for my audition, I will be reading from the classic Louis L'Amour novel, Hondo. <laughs> It's and like Coffin and the Great Gatsby, it, dude. It was. It was exactly that. And I knew that. I knew I wasn't being original. But I also knew it was going to take a tremendous amount of balls to just stand there and read until they stopped me. So I just opened it up, and it's dead silent. And you hear a little rustling, and I go, Hondo walked into the noonday sun. <laughs> and I just began, and they're just sitting there letting me read and read and read. And I was doing it on purpose for the Kaufman-esque reasons of... Internal strength, man. I bet you were developing it as yes, it went. Yes, I'm the boss of this moment. Um, and, and to prove it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna go for your approval at all. I'm gonna stand here and be disapproved by you, and and, and sit in that for a little bit. Do you so, love Coffin? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, it's funny because I, I, it's the same way. We both make sense. We love the British Office. It's uncomfortable. So uncomfortable. I don't know why I, I love that uncomfortable thing. because it's it's a risk. I think that's why I love it. It's a, it's a really risky thing to do. It is. And also you talk about his timing and his commitment. Um it's it, he was fully fully invested. And I just honestly I don't regret much, but I do regret looking back that I didn't more fully commit to some of the comedy I was a part of. That's who the great ones are. That's your Chris Farley's and uh, you know It's always a, it's always the darkest people that are the brightest shiners. Well, that, that, that's true, and, but which is weird for you because I, I've, you are the happiest night. Like me, I go into a hole, Chip, and I, I go into a hole until it's time to come out and do my thing. And I, I'm not super social. And I see you and people, and you talk to people and you hug people. And, and I do until I don't. But you are always on, which is weird for me to see someone who can do all of this and still maintain like your creativity. You know, I, I, 
there was a time in my acting classes where I remember, I, look, I haven't had this easy upbringing. If I could, if I wrote a book, there would be things, there would be my parents' divorce and, and growing up without my dad right there. Um, my dad uh, and his second wife lost uh, a son to crib death. And I was, I was still a young guy. Um, there there's, that stuff was brutal and, and hurts and still hurts. So that's all in there. But I remember even in acting going, seeing these people with these really, these stories and going, man, I somehow wish my life was a little more messed up. I'd have more to draw on, but I, I stopped that. I grew up, I grew out of that. Um, I'm not, believe me, I, I, I got my dark places on my tough, my sad moments. I don't know if it's any less than a whole lot of people. I sometimes, I got to be honest, I feel very, very blessed, very, very fortunate. And I feel not a responsibility that I have to put a fake face on. But when somebody comes up, it requires so little from me. It requires so few calories. Fame or these TV things, it's almost like a long lever. Like if you're trying to get a, a, bolt, a rock out of your yard, right? And you have a little stick, it's not going to do it. But if you have this long, long two-by-four, right? And you stick it under there and you got a good level, you barely got to pull at the end of it. And it, it can move a big old boulder. I feel like that's what it is when I'm out there. All I got to do is say, oh, it's nice to meet you. Thank you. Really? Oh, well, thank your mom for me. And, and, you know, take a picture. It just doesn't feel like a lot to me. In fact, I don't know why psychically, emotionally, it feels like more energy to me to hold that off somehow, to put my, to give a stiff hand, to keep my head down, to avoid it feels like it would take a whole lot of effort. For me, it's not avoidance because when I'm out, like I appreciate anyone that does anything that I do. It comes, listens, but it's, I stay in my room until I want to go out. It seems like you're out and you're very social all the time. No, I don't. I don't. I'm home. I'm home a whole lot. Um, I, I, the things I go to, uh, you well, you do a ton of charity events. You go to things and you're, I mean, you, you, you're out in the world probably more than I am. If we were really going to compare uh, schedules, you're talking about when you're off the clock, you mean? I just feel like I have two modes, hide in my room and then... When I'm out, and when I'm out, I'm appreciative, and I love yeah. everybody all the time. But I, I have a really, where I just want to be by myself all the, a lot. Well, I think the family changes that. You know, that's fair. And I, you do have a family. Yeah, I, I got have a, a dog. I got yeah. When 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 you do, if when you have whatever you have, right. you're gonna you're going to go to your daughter's um, pageant. You know, you're going to go to your son's um, scout meeting, and there's going to be other fathers, and there's going to be other people, and uh, I'm not always super in my comfort zone in those in those moments but i can't choose that other thing and um and i really don't want to look I, I, it goes again to I, i've been doing this a long time i'm just grateful i don't know how long i have doing this we saw how fragile it is it almost went away right there and when it's gone i don't know how long people care about my singles or, or what i'm doing um i've had 20 years to sort of not be bothered <laughs> so now it's like please yeah. bring it up. It's not even please. It's yeah. like I don't mind. I mean, whose line was fine? I'd be in line. It would nobody'd say anything for like a week, and then I'd be in line at the bank, and somebody would just tap my shoulder and go, "You're very funny." <laughs> <laughs> like, Man, you can't pay for that. And so, so yeah, I think I just uh, I, I'm, I'm making hay while the while, while the sun shines, and I do enjoy it. I'm not gonna lie, I love it. 
Mike, how long are we into this? A little over an hour. Okay, well, we're about to wrap. This is the, the long... We could do this for three hours. Like, I really feel like we could sit here for three hours and just talk. I do want to say, the first time I saw you, I was a huge Married with Children fan. And when you came in as, <laughs> when you came in as Kelly's boyfriend... Um, Lonnie Tot. Yeah. I, I, that's the first time I ever saw Chip Aston on television. There you go. And you were Kelly Bundy's boyfriend. Were you a mechanic? Were you? What was your job? Um... You know what? I yeah, I think I was. I was the heir to the tot fortune. They they actually made tater tots, and so I was I was the the dumb son of a rich. You're really uh, dumb. Yeah, oh, yeah, very you're really dumb. dumb. Yeah. Really good looking. I, I made I made Kelly look smart, which was which was the trick in that thing. By the way, I think I bet I knew something. I bet I was on something before that that you knew. Uh, do you remember? Were you a Cheers fan? Oh yeah, I watched Cheers. Right? I, was, I was really young, but I remember Cheers. Yeah, do you ever remember an episode where? Um, uh, look at me pitching myself. We're almost done. <laughs> So you were never said Cheers. I right? was, I was. That was the very first thing I did, which was mind blowing because it was like through the looking glass. It was literally like looking at a painting, or it would be like looking at that dogs playing poker painting your whole life, right? And then one day you're sitting at the table with the dogs looking out. It that, that made no sense, but you know what I mean. I stepping to the other side of that was mind blowing. But it was a really fun episode where Cliff um, buys a video camera, and he and he gets into this idea that he and Norm are going to start filming people's events because so many events happen at the bar they will start videotaping them on a big old vhs tape and they will make some money while they're there in the bar anyway so let's videotape their events the very first one they do it's a giant family reunion and they've got this thing on their shoulder and these cool things are happening and suddenly they realize that they don't have a battery there's no battery and he didn't get a battery and so it's just a dead camera and so they decide what they're going to do is Cliff says oh it's alright Nami we're just going to pretend that we're uh, shooting this whole thing and then later we tell them we lost the tape in the mail that you know we sent we sent the tape and it just won't arrive so the whole episode is them pretending to tape and he goes what's going to happen anyway it's just a family reunion and uh, of course bigger and bigger things happen and the grandfather stands up and goes I've never told you all this but I want you to know I love you I love every one of you <laughs> And he's like, oh, it's not my fault he didn't tell his family he loved them. <laughs> and then later I was like the second thing where I'd come busting in the door and uh, dressed in full military garb. And I'm like, Grandma, Grandpa, <laughs> I threw 30 hours on a max You're back. just to get here. That's uh, funny. Just to say happy anniversary. I'm like, oh, Terry, we thought you were dead. <laughs> and they're pretending to film it. And then the best one of all is the grandmother who's been in a wheelchair the entire episode says, I want you to all know that you've given me the strength to do this. Oh, no. She, <laughs> she steps out about her <laughs> And they're going, oh, my God. So um, I, I guess you don't remember it, but if, if you saw it, that was, that was the real first um, big thing that I did. It was their last season. It was, it was a thrill. So, yeah. So here's – and back to today. So I uh, searched Charles Eston, and this is called This Town Is Ours. It's out now. So in every single Friday, for how long are you putting these songs out? Like, do you have in your mind what I, you can do now? I think that's number nine, and um, <clears throat> yeah, I got a, I got a bunch more, and um, each I like more than the next, so they're all very, very different. I look, let's, I'm gonna aim at a year. That's crazy to even go 25 is crazy to go 52. Like that's right. I, I probably won't make it, and and but but. Uh, but if I say 20, it's like, so what? You made two albums. You made a double album. That's a lot. That's still a lot. I know. Um, look, I, I love writing. I love doing it. And more than anything, if we've come down to one uh, 
thing, unifying thread of all this. I don't mind failing. If I don't make it to a year, <laughs> I didn't make it to a year. It's just it's a nice round number. If there were 10 months in a year, I'd probably say that. But um, I know I have over 30. Um, and, and for me, it's, it, it'll mean the music's out there. It'll mean I have a body of work. I'm, uh, I'm 50 damn years old, and in two days, I'm 51. What day is it? Three days. Oh, you can cut that out if we're not on the right day. <laughs> um, but what am I going to wait for? Am I going to put out an album, put out 12 songs, and wait another 8, 10 months, put out another 12? Yeah, I could do that. I don't know. Is it going to – am I going to knock uh, Barbara Streisand off the charts? <laughs> Hell no. <laughs> no. So I'm just putting out the songs, and, and, and already they're streaming, and already people are the, – the, I, I And they're getting put on playlists? Like, I mean, you – It is. You're – you're doing a thing where I think people are starting to appreciate you as an artist, which is hard to do if you're coming from where people know you doing something else, which is your acting. I think this takes that on immediately. That's right in the face. I mean, if I could, if I could do that for any amount, if it's nowhere near 52, and, I, and by the way, I, I wrote them all, or I co-wrote them all, that's just that's saying something. I mean, so it's, I'm, i got to be honest. I, I'm, as I told you how old I am. I'm at the foot of a mountain again, and I'm looking up, and I'm just starting to climb. And that's thrilling. I, I'm not one of those guys that want to be, I've worked hard long enough, I'm done with it. I, 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 I love this. And I love the fact that you and I sitting right here don't know what will come of this. We don't know what will come of it in a month or a year. Um, any of the, if nothing comes of it, the music's all out of it. But meanwhile, you're walking around, every single song is a lottery ticket. I don't care. Somebody hears one, cuts it, and you know, does an unbelievable version of it that I could never imagine. Um, any, there's... I don't even know what's going to happen. All I know is that I, I can only be in control of what I'm in control of, and that is uh, making this music and sending it out there. And Nashville starts back in November? Actually, um, I, I believe they said the beginning of January, and I start back tomorrow. I shoot my first scene tomorrow. January? Um, yeah. Why did I think November? Um, I don't know. Right. I th- there, was, there was talk of December, but it wasn't my talk. Well, that's also not November, so <laughs> exactly. I, I, I missed it twice. You just couldn't wait. You had so, to bring it in. So January. You were thinking of Thanksgiving and gratitude. that oh, And the gratitude that okay. I have for you for sitting in, in a, a bedroom here at my house. <laughs> hey, we have, do you have cushy chairs that rock? This is cushy. This is the most comfortable interview I have ever um, been in. This Sincerely, the fact that I'm still awake, this is so comfortable. I appreciate <laughs> you hanging for an hour and just talking. Like, this is my favorite thing to do. Like, just get down, learn, understand. I like this podcast because it allows you to – what was the version you – different version of it. It's like um, slower. You can, you can go down paths and, and alleyways that you normally wouldn't have time for or want to. I, I could take you on a boring anecdote or, anecdote or two that we would add to I cut from sometimes that's just how stories are. So that's why I like listening to them too. It's you're going to get that next level. So uh, thanks. Nashville back in January, and uh, that's awesome. We're watching and uh, the music's out there. For search again, search Charles. That's his uh, performer name. And it's hashtag every single Friday. Let me say one more thing about Nashville. We we didn't get too much. The show about or the it. city? Um, this will be about the show. Okay. <clears throat> Uh, I'm really, this is not like going to CMT and these new writers, this is not like a tacked on extra year to a show okay, that by that, all rights is done. I didn't know that. That's what it feels like <clears throat> it could be. No, that's that's what it might have been and could have been. I totally get that. Honest to goodness, as much as I love the show, I wouldn't have wanted to do that. I don't want to tack on an added year beyond what it is. Uh, th- this is at the beginning, like I said, the beginning of a mountain again. This is a new thing. These writers have a new take on this show. But when I say a new take, it's almost the original take. Not Look, even this, all right, what we're doing right here, 
is a more lyrically paced and you can wander and meander and, and, and touch on some things that you couldn't on, on, well, I can't tell you what you can't do because you do whatever you want on your show, but I just generally mean in the format of, of radio, oh, sure. you, it's, of broadcast radio. Absolutely. Well, it's the exact same thing with network TV. You have to, you have to, there's things you have to do. There's masters you have to serve. You have to flip a truck or two. You have to, uh, you know, fall off a building or two. There's, and these things that, um, I'm, I'm real pleased for the four years we had and very grateful, but in this other setting, whether it's CMT and these new writers, I think that we can go back to some of the stuff that not only was, uh, initially drew people to the show, but I always think it was the real heart of the show. Anyway, we were sometimes, competing in an arena that we weren't, wasn't our strength. It wasn't our forte to compete with a, a show, um, that can be so, um, incredibly, uh, um, there's so many things that go on on some of these shows on these network shows. And we were doing that too, but I thought the thing, and that's what makes them great, but that's never was what made us great. What made us great and what, what attached people to us and made them not let go was those tiny little moments, those little looks between Deacon and Rainer that, or that little sad moment between, you know, uh, whether it was Juliet or, or something like that. It was those moments of connection and those, those more real moments. I think we're going to be able to get to do a lot more of those and the whole thing is going to be able to breathe a little bit. It's going to, it's like an old time lemonade, that lemonade stand that we first were for a little bit. We ended up having to make a lot more lemonade at a, at a much bigger a scale, quicker pace. Yeah. And even what I'm saying, I don't, I'm not disrespecting what we did, but I'm just saying that this, the nature of the beast was <clears throat> that you had to do a network television show at a network television pace. Yeah, and and we loved getting to do it, and they right. were fantastic while we got to do it. But it's like, ooh, what are we going to get to do now? Well, uh, is there anything you want to say? Because we read that Connie only signed on for half the season. I'm not allowed to comment on any of that because that, that, that leads to a storyline and all that. All I can do is comment backwards, and, and you know, I mean, how much uh, – she the day I met her is the worst line in the world, but it was truer than it could be. So I said, I said, there's a million reasons I'm excited to do this show, and you're a couple hundred of them. I was a huge Friday Night Lights fan. She is going to be there tomorrow when I go to work, and uh, she's been there every day until now. And uh, I could not ask. You. I could not bring that up. No, no, no. I wouldn't. Ex- I'd be, yeah, 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 yeah. I would drive out here going. I could not he didn't bring even that up. Ask. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have also become personal friends with Connie, and man, what a strong. Per- What's she like? I don't even friend. say strong woman because I, I don't want to nope. disrespect nope. women. Right. She's just one of the strongest people. And one of you have a conversation and you just kind of fall into it with her. I completely agree. And I'll tell you what, more than that, um, throughout all these years of what we've been doing, one of the one of the true norths of the show was uh, Callie Curry. Whenever she would direct or whenever she would write an episode, I always could feel the whole thing come more back towards true north, like on your compass of what the show is best at, what it's meant to be. Uh, Connie is that as well. Connie um, would always have a clear vision of what this should be and what we were doing. And um, she was, for me... I give her so much credit for anything I've ever been able to do on the show because she's an absolute truth detector. Or maybe that's a nice way of saying a bullshit detector. Big time. And with me too. Like she's <laughs> called me out on – she's passionate. Yep. And she's very much, here's what I am. Yeah. And that's it. And also even in, in terms of her acting, it's just real. She's just talking. I remember – I think it was first season. But I realized that it, look, if you're talking to her in a scene – 
And it's very hard not to add your little things that you think are going to make you look cool or make the line sound really good. And so you create this little primrose path that you might walk down for how the scene will play the best. But that's not being in the moment. And that's not being real. And I don't know how she's going to react to something I say. So how can I know how I'm going to react to her reaction? So it forced you to let all that go because the second I didn't let it go, if I ever said something, her truthfulness would make me sound so damn phony that I'd go, let's try that again. Stop. I can't do it that way. And I would just... And so I remember one time, this was it in a nutshell, that we did. We were doing some scenes, and she did all her coverage, and it was my turn, and it was feeling good. It was fine. And, uh, and finally, um, we had a great director, too. And he walked back, and he's going to the, uh, back to the video village, and, I, and we're about to say action again. I just leaned over to her. I go, I just wasn't feeling it all the way. And I said, just give me something. Give me something. Give me a note. Say something. Make me be better, you know, <laughs> real quickly. And she smiled. She goes, just talk to me. And I was like, Yes, yes, exactly that. It's so obvious, but it's so brilliant. And so we did that take, and she says her thing, and I just talked to her. And it's like that, that, again and again, that. But it takes somebody uh, strong, uh, both mentally and you know, emotionally and every other way, to remember that and to hold to their guns and always be that. It's back in January. Uh, Chip's got songs every Friday for the next 10 years. He's claimed it here. <laughs> he's going to do this for 10 years. I said, Eventually, honestly, it's going to be my, every single day. What I said was gonna... it's every single Friday until it's stupid. And I don't know. It might already be, but uh, until I think it's stupid. I think stop. it's like I told you privately was I think as an artist, you're showing something here that people didn't know you were. And so you're consistently putting out new music. You're showing that you are... Okay, yeah, you're Deacon on Nashville. You're this here, this, but you're also an artist, and you play live shows, and you, it, you know, for people to be able to see versatility is tough because they start to put people in roles, and you're doing something that's kind of hard for people to understand at first. But I think people are finally getting it now. I'll tell you one more thing: the real the, the, already though, it's 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 been so cool because you've seen this, and now I've finally seen it after all these years of playing here and around town and around the country. I've played shows now for the last couple of weeks, and as I'm singing a song I love, I see it on their lips. Have it's you, the coolest you, thing ever. It's the coolest. It's the coolest thing ever. Yeah, so, yeah, it's nuts. So already I win. Ta-da! Ta-da! All right, there he is. Uh, Chip Eston, or as he makes me call him off the microphone, Charles. <laughs> Thank you for being here on the Bobbycast. Dude, I hope you had fun. This is a lot of fun for me. It was a blast. Just yeah. to sit back and, and, and talk it out. Thank you, man. Mike, you wanna, we, we never went to you. We got lost. Anything you want to ask, uh, Chip, before we go? Uh, just thanks for talking about Hoedown. That was my favorite bit ever. I was geeking out a bit. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate <laughs> it. All right. Uh, hashtag every single Friday. Again, Charles Eston, and he's got new music every Friday, and there's a lot out there already. And he's also uh, on the road a lot, playing. You and Claire are playing. You and all. Yeah, we're in New Jersey. Um, on I don't know when this airs, but uh, it airs. It'll, it'll be up tonight, but it'll be up forever. So there you go. He'll be in New Jersey soon, and then probably again. <laughs> and again, and again, yeah, and again. exactly. All right, uh, thank you guys, and we'll talk to you soon.